Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Pedagogue is committed to facilitating conversations that move across institutions and positions. Each episode is with a different teacher or teachers about their approach to teaching, their teaching practices, values, assignments, assessments. The goal here is to provide space for and promote diverse voices at various institutions. You can always read more about Pedagogue on the site, pedagogpodcast.com. Again, that's pedagogpodcast.com. You can also follow along on our blog and connect with us on Twitter or Instagram. In this episode, Lisa King joins us. We talk about Native American and Indigenous rhetorics, what this work means for the classroom, how it changes our approach to teaching writing and rhetoric, how to navigate conversations in the classroom on Indigenous texts and artifacts, and Lisa shares additional resources for teachers and allies. Lisa King is an Associate Professor of English at the University of Tennessee. Her research and teaching interests include cultural rhetorics, with an emphasis in contemporary Native American and indigenous rhetorics, visual rhetorics, and material rhetorics. More specifically, her focus rests on the rhetorics of cross-cultural sites such as indigenous museums and cultural centers, and theorizing cross-cultural pedagogy through the teaching of indigenous texts in rhetoric and composition classrooms. Her scholarship has appeared in journals such as JAC, Pedagogy, College Literature, Studies in American Indian Literatures, and American Indian Quarterly. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Before we talk about the importance of listening and including conversations from Native American communities and tribes, their stories and text, and before we talk about why we should be doing this work in the writing classroom, I was hoping we could start by framing cultural rhetoric pedagogy and Native American and Indigenous rhetorics. That might give us a better understanding of what this work does and will allow us to better understand the purposes behind talking about survival and sovereignty. Indigenous rhetorics as a field of study is broad, of course, it overlaps into indigenous studies and cultural studies in the sense that what we're looking at and what we're thinking about um, and the places that we're writing from are is the orientation towards indigenous rhetorical traditions of these lands, the founding rhetorical tradition or indigenous traditions here, um, that of course that means reorienting fundamentally the way we think about rhetoric as something that comes from the Greco-Roman tradition as it has been sort of translated and enhanced and changed um, through the European tradition and then imported here. Right? So we have to think about, re- rethink, I think, how we understand rhetoric is as, you know, meaning making with language, of course, but Indigenous rhetorics wants us to think about, you know, Indigenous peoples here, uh, the traditions that already existed, past and present, contemporary work just as much as historical work, the ways in which Indigenous peoples have developed their, their own practices. I think most of us, what we're most interested in are, are cont- is contemporary work, ways in which Indigenous peoples have negotiated, especially with colonization, colonization and education, what that represents now in terms of erasure of Indigenous peoples from the rhetorical tradition, from our campuses, from our understanding, from recognition at all in the United States. Although if we talk about Indigenous, of course, that goes worldwide broadly, um, but mostly the, the focus that, that most of us are working on happens um, within North America. So it's it's past, but it's also very much present. It's also imagining futures for us in terms of meaning-making practices. And you know, we talk about digital in terms of, of bits and bytes, but we can also talk about it in terms of fingers, as Angela 
Haas talks about in her article, Welcome to Hypertext. And I love teaching that article just for that reason, because people don't think of digital in the in the older meaning, which is to say your digits, your fingers. Um, the things that we make are, are also significant. And that, that, that's not just for indigenous rhetoric. I mean, that's for any crafting practice, any making practice um, anywhere. Um, so I, I think those are the kinds of links that, that broaden indigenous rhetoric's application when we start thinking in, in broader terms of, of cultural rhetoric, right? Of course, we work with language. We're working with English. We're working with indi- indigenous languages. We're working with cross-cultural situations. We're working with the writing classroom. Um, we're working with what goes on in indigenous communities. Uh, my own work focuses on self-representation in museum spaces. We're also thinking about visual representations in terms of art, in terms of performance, in terms of mascots, in terms of stereotyping, in terms of how people think about indigenous peoples when where did those assumptions come from and what do we need to do to, to work through that, to change that. Um, or if that invisibility is a problem altogether, how do we help cultivate a narrative of presence uh, and encourage people to take that up rather than continuing to ignore indigenous peoples and their really significant contribution day to day and historically. Do you mind talking more about what this approach does to teaching or how this shapes our understanding of teaching writing? How do we incorporate this work in the classroom or how does this work transform the nature of our classrooms? I, I think this kind of work is intimately tied to decolonial practices and I don't mean decolonial in terms of a kind of academic buzzword. I mean it in terms of really thinking hard about the ways in which our classrooms, our institutions, our programs are structured along old colonial lines that are so taken for granted that they're invisible to us about what it means to communicate well on paper in a particular language for this and that reason. You know, what other possibilities are there? And I think the field is going in some really interesting and exciting directions in terms of opening up what what rhetoric means further. So when we think about indigenous rhetorics in the classroom, it also means thinking really hard about decolonizing our classrooms in terms of what kind of work what kind of ideas are we promoting unthinkingly perhaps about uh, whose work matters and whose language matters and whose uh, work is valuable and whose isn't, whether that's implicit or explicit. Uh, and so when we encourage people, and when I say we, I'm talking about the, the community of scholars who work in Indigenous rhetorics, uh, many of whom hail from ties to and relationships with Indigenous communities and nations. What we're encouraging people to do is rethink that structure of the classroom and move towards something that, and again, when I say something like, this is work that's ongoing, um, it's almost something you feel in your bones and it's hard to articulate. Um, it's a vision that hasn't quite hasn't quite materialized but we're working on it. This is exactly the kind of work we need to do. So with our uh, the first collection of the American Indian Caucus worked together on, um, and I was honored to be an editor for it, uh, one of the three co-editors, it was uh, myself, Joyce Rain Anderson, and Rose Bubery, and uh, Survivance, uh, Sovereignty, and Story. And what we were trying to do there is to start providing some entryways into this. So if you're thinking about indigenous rhetorics in the classroom, what does that look like? Well, it means that if you're thinking about the rhetorical tradition, uh, it's not just I mean, like the, the three key concepts that my students all know is, is you know, like logos, ethos, pathos, right? We all know those. What other orientations can we take to rhetorical practice? What if we start thinking of it in terms of indigenous key terms or things that are fairly consistent across indigenous communities? Something about relationship, reciprocity, responsibility. What does that look like? What happens if we start teaching with those as well, right? Kinds of, are there strategic alliances that can be made or strategic reorientation? Because if there's a critique of, of Greco-Roman practices, uh, as it's been translated into the present, it's that it's agonistic. It's fighting. It's battle-oriented. It is when 
win lose. And it's way too easy for that to turn into a zero sum game. What I think many indigenous reorient us towards is community again. And that's not the only way. And I don't think that should be like, well, we are going to be like Indians and we were going to do community practice now. I don't, I don't want anyone wants people to take it up like that. Um, if that's the easy appropriation, that's the, I'm going to, to hack a little multicultural spot into my syllabus and I'm going to plug it in and call it good. That's not what we're asking for. We're asking for a fundamental reorientation of that syllabus or, or that classroom practice. Um, and if, if there are other links that can be made to say, so what does it mean to be in community you know, for indigenous peoples or for a specific tribal community? Um, what does it mean then um, within, you know, your students' own communities? And this is actually the way I structure my own classes is if I use indigenous rhetoric as an example, I can start with that. And then I am inviting them in to say, what does your community do? Identify a community and work with that. And so we start building a constellation of understanding together uh, about what rhetorical practice and meaning making then look like and all of the complications and the ways that people bump up against each other or or clash, right? And in, in the way that contacts on the places where colonial spaces specifically, where people um, meet, clash and grapple, sometimes literally, uh, but sometimes rhetorically. You know, we can incorporate Native American writers and voices in our writing classrooms, and we can have conversations about community and sovereignty. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're committed and invested in these values and this work. You mentioned earlier how we shouldn't just include a text on our syllabus and call it good. So I think we have to consider what we're asking students to do. And I don't mean what we're asking them to read. I'm talking about something beyond that. I'm thinking about how students also need to be thinking and analyzing what this means and why this matters, how this impacts us individually, but also communally, how this makes us think about our own histories and what's happening in current communities or who's being affected by laws and policies, which means as teachers, we have to provide opportunities for students to explore this in writing. Do you mind sharing an assignment or how students take up this work in your classroom. The first assignment is a sort of they have to students have to choose a community that they belong to, right? So I can model for them what that looks like, you know, using indigenous sources, and then they choose their own community. So again, and I think that the fine line that you have to walk when you're working with controversial material or material that students are going to feel any kind of guilt over, they're like, I should have known this. What are you calling me a colonizer? And you know, in your head, you might say, well, technically we can talk about that. But what I'm not after at the moment is trying to cut people down. What I'm trying to do is to get you to open up and think about what community means, what rhetorical practice means. And I want you to do it with your community, but also its connections to others in mind. And so while I'm modeling this using indigenous writers um, as much as I can, I'm asking students to do that kind of analytical work with their own communities. Right, so I get stories about what it's like to be an immigrant, what it's like to be a woman in STEM, what it's like to be an artist, um, what it's like to belong to you know, a, a, a sorority. <laughs> that was a really interesting project. Um, I learned a lot about CrossFit and what that community looks like. But the idea is they can, they can select something that's significant to them. We can model that. So the first is a rhetorical values analysis, a narrative analysis where they have to choose one source that represents their community and work through you know, how do rhetorical values and narrative framing operate, right? Um, and then you know, how, do they, how does your community tell its story? And what, is it, what kinds of appeal? is it invoking. And then the second one is an autoethnographic project where they have to talk about how their community represents itself, how others have misrepresented it, but then also how your own community has also misrepresented others potentially. So I refuse them the victim narrative. Now to different extents, right? I know that if a student is writing about being an immigrant uh, or belonging to an immigrant community, that there are some very real threats these days. 
not that there hasn't been in the past, but the, the threat has become all the sharper, right? So when they go to that last part to talk about misrepresentations that their community makes, you know, I think I'm thinking of a particular student project where they were talking about how internally what they do to each other, right? So he's able to talk about the sort of internal conflicts within the community. Um, and that was that was a really beautiful nuance and, and something that um, he had a space to write about that he hadn't had a chance to do before. Others talk about being uh, an immigrant or part of an immigrant family. I've talked about, you know, sort of the racism that, that comes with that, but then also the temptation to paint everyone else you know, outside the community um, in self-defense, right? And so that's different than the kinds of narratives that it feels like lower stakes or like, well, I'm a fan of country music. And sometimes people think I'm a, but then again, but there's, but there's still also legitimate class questions there, right? And, and rural versus urban. I mean, so there, there's, there's a way I think to, to legitimize student stories, but also to make sure that they're willing to complicate them and to tease that out. Thank you, Lisa. This is my last question. I was hoping maybe you could talk more about being an ally. How can teachers be become more familiar with Native American and Indigenous rhetorics. I'm thinking about your edited collection, Survivance, Sovereignty, and Story, because it helps frame some of these concepts and why they should be taught, and also offers really practical strategies and resources for teachers. So maybe you could talk about how that work came to be, and then where teachers can go that can help with these practices. When we first were designing the, the edited collection, um, Survivance, Sovereignty, and Story, we were thinking about all of our, our allies, all of our educator friends who were saying, you know, I really wish I could do this. I just, I don't know how to get that into my classroom. I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake. I don't want to misrepresent. And so maybe it's better if I just go hands off altogether. I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to stick with what I'm comfortable with. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll support you from afar and I'll come to your panels and, 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 uh, and, you know, and that kind of moral support is great. But what we really need is for people to do that decolonizing work in our classrooms. Um, so, but here's the thing. I understand the fear. And as teachers, we all know that we make mistakes. We screw up. We slip up. Um, with the best of intentions, it could be, and it, you know, it could be an exercise that worked really great with one class. You turn around, you take it to the next one, and it bombs, right? So, you know, I say this with all empathy. I totally get it. Um, at the same time, we need you. And so, what we're advocating for, and what the, that edited collection was meant to do, was to be a sort of beginning point. It was meant to be a series of ideas for what could you do in your classroom. And I think many of those pieces talked about this and was thinking about key terms. So I, I, I wrote one of the, the first chapters in the book to sort of introduce key terms, right? Because people are like, I don't have the background, I don't have the education. Okay, good. Well, let's let's start with sovereignty. Let's talk, you know, let's talk about self-representation. Let's talk about some of these basics, right? Good. You got that? You've already got a good foundation. Let's start with that. Then look where you are. You need to ground yourself in the place and history of where you are and the land where you are. Because all of this is indigenous land. All of it. There is no place you can stand in North America that's not, right? So recognizing that, who are the indigenous communities who were and are here, right? And I guarantee you, they're still there. No place has been completely erased. The University of Tennessee doesn't have an indigenous studies program. It's a crying shame and embarrassment. And if you ask about it, they'll say, well, we don't have any federally recognized tribes in the state of Tennessee. And then the counter question I have is, why is that? Do you remember your history? Now, the also great thing is that the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians has also begun purchasing property in Tennessee. So now we kind of, there's a little foothold there. So I feel like, I, you know, I'm building justification that way too, or at least I can I can build on, on, on Eastern Band's reclamation of its homeland. So, uh, but I'll just say it's like, you, so you can self-educate, you can learn the histories of place. There are resources out there. There are land maps. Um, talk to your university librarians, help you, you know, they're there to help you find that information, but self-educate about the indigenous peoples of the land you're on, right? Um, and so that's, I think, really significant. Those are two really great starting points. From there, I mean, 
Let's talk about national news. Let's talk about Standing Rock because Indians in the news, they're everywhere. We have two tribal members in Congress right now, right, that are doing really amazing work and they're really pushing our elected representatives to do better, right, or they're trying. So we can talk about murdered and missing Indigenous women. We can talk about Standing Rock. We can talk about the protests going on right now at Mauna Kea and on the Big Island in Hawaii. You know, so we there is stuff going on all the time, but we got to make that visible. So I would say keep an eye out and, and keep working to do that because you got to put the effort in. And yeah, you might make some mistakes, but we're glad to provide you resources and we want to support you. Um, so on that on that note, in terms of resources, um, so of course our edited collection, <laughs> of course we, we, we offer up, this is this is what we want to share with you. Let's see, uh, Crystal Echo Hawk and a Reclaiming Native Truth Project is a really great online resource. And so if you just Google um, Reclaiming Native Truth, you'll get to the website and there's actually an entire publication, it's a PDF that you can download for free called Changing the Narrative About Native Americans, A Guide for Allies. And so if you want something written by indigenous peoples from across the United States who say, hey, you want to do some better work, here's what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to challenge that narrative of invisibility because what their report found and the, the long years of research they did on one of the major barriers to non-native peoples understanding indigenous peoples on, on this land and understanding all those issues is invisibility. So. I think one of, the, one of the major steps that has to happen. So that um, changing the narrative about Native Americans, a guide for allies, I think is really significant and a really useful resource for people who are wanting to, to get better involved um, or to get more involved and to better educate themselves about what they can do and what's appropriate to do. And I would also say, you know, <laughs> come to our panels, look up our research. The American Indian Congress that sees is working on a, a bibliography that we can share more publicly. Um, the wonderful thing is that, especially compared to 15 years ago, we had, uh, there's so much more scholarship out there and we have more people working on it um, and it's a really beautiful thing. But I think we're finally to that point now where we have a critical mass of scholarship that we want to be able to make available, or at least some people have titles, books, um, ideas for, where, for resources for where to go. They're out there. We have them. So, and, and that, that work is ongoing.